Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, and today we're going to be talking with Dr. Robert Stickgold. Dr. Stickgold is an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and works in the Center for Sleep and Cognition at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. His research interests include sleep and cognition, dreaming, and conscious states. He's also the author of two science fiction novels, Glory Hits and The California Coven Project, both published by Del Rey. Dr. Sickle, you used the phrase maps of predictability. I did. As uh, what the brain creates from the information it's received during the day, during sleep. Right. Can you tell us more about what you mean by that? Well, it, it's a little bit of a of the of sort of the evolutionary argument of, of what's the purpose of all that and of all this of all this processing. And, and the concept is that what we're what we really use our memory for from an evolutionary perspective, which might be very different from how we feel like we use it, is that it's to help us alter our behavior in the future based on what happened in the past. Mm-hmm. So we learn that some things work and some things don't work, that there's good food over there, there's no food over there. Um, as we get more sophisticated through evolution, the, the questions and the the calculations we make about that become more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. And so the concept is that you, you go through your day, you have, you know, tons and tons of experiences, you know, some of which you sort of pay a lot of attention to and some of which you don't and some of which you think are useful and some of which you don't. Mm-hmm. And and then the part of what happens at night is your brain goes through and tries to eke out additional information from it. So... Um, I think I talked about the weather prediction task yes. in my talk. So that's an example of where, you know, you've had 200 trials of this experience where there, you have this vague sense that there must be rules and you don't quite know what they are. And that what your brain does while you sleep is sort of go through not those 200 trials as if it had memorized them, but whatever sort of information it did retain and try to figure out more clearly what the rules are. And if you know the rules, you know how things are likely to happen or behave in the future. Mm -hmm. And this is a big, hairy, complicated example, but a simpler example is, you know, if you're a two-year-old, your your mom or dad points at something, says, look at that, that's a doggy, and and that's a doggy, and that's a doggy, and that's a kitty cat, and that's a cat, and that's a doggy, and about ten animals into it, you start to figure out what the rules are. Mm-hmm. I'm having this experience with Sudoku. Yes, yes, that's right. You 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 know that there are clever ways to do it. Mm-hmm. And which which paper do you do? What do you mean? Which paper? do you do it in the newspaper? Or are you just doing it in a little uh, book? Oh, I have a big Will Short book. Oh, okay. So the easy ones you can. I mean, so for me in Sudoku, I still feel like there are rules that I don't quite have mastered. Mm-hmm. And and with that, I think we actually try, or I, I try to actually enunciate them. You know, say, okay, so the rule is, you know, if you can, if you know that there has to be an eight up there in one of those two cells in the top row, then there can't be an eight in those rows over there, even though you don't know exactly where it goes yet. Mm-hmm. And those become formal rules that we learn. I think a lot more of what sleep works on 
is these things that we can't explicitly state. So if I were to ask you, um, I've got a Martian coming to visit. He's going to be going through photographs of dogs or cats. What should I tell him is how he can tell the pictures of the dogs from the cats? Mm -hmm. Your answer is? You're asking me now? Yeah. Oh, shape of the face. Um, what about the shape of the face? Oh, a cat has a, a flatter face and a, a smaller triangular nose. Um, am I getting warm? The flatness is probably the best one. But a lot of people won't even come up with that much. And, and you're now sort of trying to figure out the rule. You don't use those rules when you look at an animal, right? Yeah, it's grokking it. It's yeah, that's right. You just look mm -hmm. at it and say, the standard answer people give me is, well, if it looks like a cat, it's a cat. <laughs> <laughs> so so we, have, we have learned the rules without knowing them. Yes. And, and those, those sorts of that's I think what I'm talking about by these maps of probability. It's why kids, when they are introduced to a penguin and are told that it's a bird, yeah. not only have trouble accepting it, but then when they do accept it, the studies show they get very confused about whether a blue jay is a bird anymore. Hmm. Because they feel like, okay, the, this this map of probability that I predicted that said that things like that are going to be birds and if they're not like that, they're not, is wrong. And I'm not quite sure yet what what I should settle on is my new gestalt sense of it. Mm -hmm. How does this relate then to your mentioning that you also um, see sleep as a, a tool for development of insight? Well, because insight is exactly that process. Okay, if it's if you look at a bunch of dogs and cats and someone says, okay, these are the dogs and these are the cats, then you know that there's a rule you're supposed to extract. But if you just have information that – so, so the classic example in the, in, the, in the example I used was the study by Bourne. People didn't even know that there was a new rule to be found. In the weather prediction task, everybody's trying to figure out what the rule is. Mm -hmm. But in that mathematical number reduction task where they get the string of digits and have to reduce it to a one-digit answer, they're told one way to do it, and they're not even told that there's another way to do it. So the insight is maybe always? That's a question for you. Insights might require that you not be looking for them. Mm. Well, I, I think that's... Um, a whole other conversation, but I, I think I think you've got something there. I mean, you can't you can't say you know what I've been uh, I've been working on this research project, and I think I'm going to go try to find the insight in it. Mm -hmm. Well, so, people who study creativity have mm -hmm. sort of boiled down the creative process to one of um, sort of immersion. Uh, which is a very active right. phase, and then sort of there, there's the need to pull back away from it and let the mind um, rest, and then that insight comes, and then and then you go into validation and, right. and testing out the insight. But I think that, that that has really borne out that the moment of insight comes when perhaps um, the brain is... When you think the brain is resting. Yes. Because it's not. Right. But it, it is no longer under 
um, volitional conscious control. Mm -hmm. That word rest is critical because of what I think it's all about is neuromodulatory states. So in my talk, I talk about how there are these neuromodulators that are used in the brain, norepinephrine, serotonin, acetylcholine, mm -hmm. and that these fluctuate across the REM, non-REM cycle. And I think the REM cycle, when you've turned off norepinephrine and serotonin, is what you mean by, the, by letting the mind or the brain rest. That when you crank up the adrenaline, when you're focused, when you're heavily top-down directive, mm -hmm. that's, that's the immersion phase when you're just making yourself soak in as much information as you can and you're actively trying to remember it or craft it or shape it. And then the, the reason that brainstorming, you know, brainstorming came up, was invented, I think, in like the 60s or 70s. And it first looked very good, and then they started using it all over. You mean mind mapping, that, that process of... Uh... No, no there, there used to be this thing called brainstorming, which is when they would get a bunch of people together and they would just try to come up with new ideas, try to be creative. Mm -hmm. And... The rules were, you know, you just throw ideas out, you don't critique them, you don't criticize other people's ideas, you know, yada, yada. And it looked like it worked until they tried to do it sort of seriously. And as soon as they tried to do it seriously, it started to fail completely. And I think that was because when you, you know, there's, it's an oxymoron to say, I want you to be creative now. <laughs> right? Because as soon as you say the now, the body responds to the demand by releasing adrenaline, getting cranked up, and that's exactly the state that won't do it. Except that creative people who make their living as creative artists, whether they're composers or choreographers or poets or whatever the form, um, learn how to get into a state uh, in their waking life that is Absolutely. like a trance or a dream Absolutely. state and access those parts of so the brain. You should go for me and, and pay me back by digging out the source of the quote that I love so much, which was, alcohol for first draft, coffee for rewrite. <laughs> I never heard that and it was, it was it was someone, you know, it was one of those, those American authors who I think of as being somewhat southern, but I'm not sure. But but it's exactly that statement, mm. right, that that the creative process comes during first draft and that you manipulate your chemistry either, you know, externally or what creative people learn to do. You know, some with substances and some without substances. That's right. It's to get themselves into an altered state mm -hmm. where the brain is, is optimized. Mm -hmm. for that type of, of associative processing where it can put things together in new and exciting ways. And then when you have to do the hard part, you know, all the rewrite, all the cleanup, yeah. um, that requires a totally different state. And the argument would be that, that the REM-non-REM -REM cycle is exactly that immersion, you know, creativity, um, validation, re-immersion, you know, like, like a cycle mm -hmm. where you, you, you first become focused and, 
and find things in a rational way during non-REM, and that REM sleep then allows for these hyper-associative networks. And depending on how far you want to go, in dreaming, you allow them to be then evaluated emotionally. Mm -hmm. So you put these things together and either produces an emotional response in the dream or it doesn't, which might be an indication to the brain of, of a calculated outcome. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a, a good segue into um, a couple of the other questions. Okay. Um, well, general intelligence, I wonder what you have found in your, in your research. Um, it seems to me that intelligence tests, have always um, included analogies, the ability to sort of connect uh, things that are um, not so clearly related. And this metaphoric intelligence is a mark of a particularly intelligent person. And I wondered if you have anything to say about that and, and whether this shows up in the dreaming mind. Oh, that's a big question. Okay, so what do I think? I, first of all, I think the intelligence tests are, are so so tainted by the particular types of associations that it decides you're supposed to find. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've I've looked at some of those when I, I I just want to scream because I say, well, okay, you want me to use this dimension for the metaphor, and and they're always looking for the one that fits the best in some rational way. I haven't noticed that, but now I want to go back and look. So they say, you know, chocolate is to ice cream as, you know, I, I, can't, I can't create them on, on the fly. That's okay. But, but you can sort of look at it and say, well, if you want to go by, you know, chocolate to ice cream, okay, chocolate is an example of ice cream, although it's not really. It's a characteristic of one type of ice cream. Mm -hmm. So is it, are they sort of going for exemplar case here, or are they going for, you know, you get into all these confusing things about, they're not creative metaphors. I guess that's my complaint. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the intelligence test people will claim that you're supposed to figure them out very rationally. And then I think it just, I don't know what I think about them. Mm -hmm. um, I think the ability to... To find and utilize metaphor reflects a particular type of intelligence that's, you know, that, that, is, that, is, that actually could be quantified if, if people got serious enough about it. But that, but that there's very many different ways to do that kind of metaphorical stuff. So, you know, if you take um, T.S. Eliot and Robert Frost, and look at their metaphors, you might not even be sure that they both should be considered in the same category. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, they're metaphors, right? Wide range. Yeah, but, but they, they almost use them in a different way. Um, I, I think that the reason that poets and, and, and authors use metaphors because it opens up in the reader, that it tends to shift the reader into that type of state where they're more amenable to to metaphor and mm -hmm. that that's the real power of it because it then opens them up to their own associative relationships to what's being said absolutely i mean if you if you if you take poetry to to high school kids 
you know, there's this whole group of them who are just going to say, well, that's all really stupid stuff, right? And I think it's because they never make the shift themselves. Mm-hmm. And if you just read it as if it was factual statements, right, it all looks kind of goofy. So you have to look at poetry and a lot of literature from a very different brain state almost for it to work. And it's what we do, you know, when you go to a theater, they, they talk about willing suspension of disbelief. And if it doesn't work for you, it didn't, you know, then, then the show is a flop mm-hmm. because it has to get you into those altered states. Okay, well, I'm uh, drifting again. No, that's fine. <laughs> but, but I think that uh, teenagers um, are certainly in search of meaning as much as the rest of us. And it's just a question of what, whether a poem can do it at that point in their life or, or whatever can, right. can help them um, get into a state where they're given permission to um, look at symbols and have their meaning-making machinery activated because if it is, then their, their teacher or their, um, their artist is, is doing their job for them. Oh, no, that's, that's, I absolutely agree. I mean, I don't think that teenagers are not in search probably more actively than most of us mm-hmm. for meaning. Just that, yes, that, that it has to be a modality that works for them. Mm-hmm. So um, shifting gears here a moment, um, you said that in in stage four sleep, three or four, mm-hmm. I'm not sure where we were, but the, that... The sort uh, of both are generally lumped together. Okay, I'm not sure what's what's different about the brain waves or, or whatever we do know about them, but you said that episodic memory is improved when um, you know we're allowed to sleep that deeply. Um, what do we know about these stages of sleep and what they're doing for us? Uh, profoundly less than than we want to, and probably than we often pretend. Um, it's only really been in the last half dozen years. That, that sleep and memory has started getting enough attention that there's more than two or three labs in the world looking at it. So we're really just breaking into it. But we know that all the studies that have been done tend to suggest that for straight episodic memory, and that includes things like if you have to memorize a list of words or of word pairs, that it's it's time spent in slow-wave sleep that seems to facilitate later performance. One of the things we know about that state is that that's the state when the hippocampus, which is the brain structure that that critically controls episodic memory, that's the stage where the hippocampus is talking back to the rest of the brain. In REM sleep, it turns out the rest of the brain talks to the hippocampus during the slow-wave sleep stages three and four, the hippocampus seems to be talking back out to the cortex. Okay, so that becomes the leader. Can you say anything more about the hippocampus and its function in the brain? Yeah, the the, the early and simple finding is that if through accident or disease or in the case of animals, intentional, you know, surgeries, we, we destroy or disable the hippocampus People, well, let's start with people. The early studies was that they they had a patient known forever after as H.M. by his initials. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. who had intractable epilepsy that was uh, coming out of, of focal locations in his hippocampi. And so since they didn't think they did anything back in the 50s, they removed them both. Mm-hmm. And since then, he has never formed a new episodic memory. And not only has he been able to form a new one, but he lost a lot of his episodic memory from uh, a variable time period prior to the surgery. So basically everything from the last week he lost, everything, most of the stuff from the last month he lost, but even stuff from a year back or two years back or five years back he lost. Wow. Um, So it turns out that when you take in some information, when you have this phone conversation with me, it's the hippocampus, not so much that stores the information, but that indexes it. So that when you go to look for it, it's the hippocampus that finds it for you, if you will. So if I ask you, what did you have for breakfast yesterday? Mm -hmm. You sort of do this chronological map. You say yesterday, Thursday, what was Thursday? And eventually your brain gives you a picture of you sitting at the table eating breakfast, or not, as the case may be. (laughs) And and it's thought that what the hippocampus does is it it sort of holds a, a map of that memory so that all the disparate pieces of it can be pulled together to give you an actual image of what happened, the replay of it. It's very different than if I ask you, what's the capital of France? You don't do something like say, Oh, the capitals, the capitals. I learned those back in No, right, it just pops forward. Right, it just comes forward. And if I ask you, you know, what would be an example, you know, yeah, a lot of it just pops forward. Or if I ask you, you know, what would you think is are your three favorite restaurants down there in New Haven? Mm-hmm. You sort of wander through a very different sort of matrix of information than if I asked you, where were the last three places you went out for dinner? Right. And so the hippocampus is what you use to figure out what was the last three places you went out to dinner. Okay. Whereas, what are your three favorite restaurants? That doesn't use the hippocampus so much. It, it might not use it at all. You can do that entirely in associative networks in the cortex. Um, and, and so the hippocampus is all about having the ability to actually recall the event and and place it in time. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to think about um, what we would be gaining uh, specifically from that region of the brain becoming the leader and instigating whatever is going to be um, well, so for example, processed or looked at. So if, if you had a, a study where you had to memorize a, a group of word pairs where you'd be told, I'm going to show you some pairs of words, then I'm going to give you the first word, and you have to come up with the second one. Mm-hmm. And if it's pairs like dog, bone, school, teacher, um, bathroom, shower. Readily associated. Right. Then you sort of go through them and say, okay, okay, okay. And then when you come back later and I say bathroom, you say, okay, so bathroom, what, let's see, was it shower, was it toilet, was it sink? Oh, no, it was, it was shower. But if it's, if it's bathroom, um, bathroom, what, um, ice cream, 
and if it's dog, potato, if it's these totally new word pairs that you just can't link up immediately, mm-hmm. you really that's what the hippocampus really shines at. Mm-hmm. It, it, it will actually say, okay, I'm going to remember that dog goes with potato. Mm-hmm. There's not going to be any link between dog and potato that you can particularly use that you already have. You're just saying dog went with potato this time. So is that used to remember people's names or or sort of remember a phone number where you kind of make a pattern out of it? Yeah, it's probably just for nailing down things that you experience during the day and make them stronger. Mm -hmm. And not so much play games with them. By play games, I mean see how they could be pictured fitting together. Okay, so you could take the pair dog-potato and bring into your mind a picture of a potato carved into the shape of a dog. Mm-hmm. And that might help you remember because it's sort of this funny new connection. Um, but but it might be that the idea is that what what's, what this slow wave, non-REM, slow, deep sleep is really about is just taking things that we noticed and learn during the day and strengthening them. Okay. And that what REM sleep is doing is something very different, which is, first of all, it turns out that REM sleep seems to be more critical for emotional episodic memory. So it might be that if you're relying on the emotional component to define it as important, that gets processed in REM sleep. Um, But also, if you're trying to take information you've received and build it into associative networks, or I would argue create meaning about it, because they're the same thing. Mm -hmm. When you create meaning, you see how things fit together. Um, That that might be explicitly a function of REM sleep. Mm -hmm. And going back and forth between them across the night might be a very efficient way to do these things. So you you form these new connections, and then maybe in the next round of slow-wave sleep, even that connection now gets a little bit strengthened. But but you see that early in the night, you have most of your slow-wave sleep, as if the first thing you want to do is sort of nail down what you've got. (laughs) And most of the REM sleep comes in the later part of the night, as if that's when you want to say, okay, what am I going to do with this? I see, yeah. Well said. Um, What would have to change for us to be able to study uh, the deep sleep um, better? It seems like uh, I've been reading about sleep my whole life and Mm -hmm. been interested in it, and it seems like that's always sort of on the back burner. It's actually moving forward. It's it's, it's actually coming forward in the last couple of years. And what's the difference? Is it the funding or is it <sighs> equipment or what, what's changing? It used to be that, so in the 50s when they discovered different sleep stages and discovered REM sleep and they erroneously discovered that we do all our dreaming during REM sleep and because the EEG in REM sleep sort of looks like waking but you're asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, there was sort of this mistaken assumption that the brain was just resting during non-REM sleep and sort of, you know, resting the way we rest our muscles, whatever that means, building up energy stores again or something. Mm-hmm. 
that during REM sleep it was during active creative things. And that if there were memory things going on, they'd be going on during REM sleep. And it was just, you know, it was just a, a silly sort of assumption based on, on EEG patterns and, and the early dream findings. Um, and that sat for a long time without being really challenged because we didn't know much at all about the functions of sleep. Uh, it was only about 15 years ago, that, or even 10 years ago, that Alan Rechtschaffen made this famous quote that if it turns out that sleep has no function, it will be the greatest blunder evolution ever made. Mm. Um, but it was still considered a serious possibility that sleep really didn't have any function other than sort of letting things rest. And even that, the meaning of that was obscured. Because we know what we mean to let uh, muscles rest. It means to let them build up their supplies of first glucose and then glycogen and then to repair any, you know, damage to the, to the cells that occurred during excessive exercise during the previous period. But there's no evidence that things like that happen in the brain. There's no evidence that the brain sort of really runs out of energy, that it needs to rest to build up its stores of energy. It doesn't even seem particularly to store energy, which is why you can never turn off your blood supply to it the way you can to your muscles. Mm. Um, so it was just sort of a, a sloppy a sloppy interpretation of, of a little bit of data. And because we didn't have functions, nobody argued about it very much. Now as we're coming up with a lot more evidence for sleep and memory, a lot of it is pointing towards non-REM sleep. And in fact now... Um, there are whole arguments that some of the types of EEG patterns we see in non-REM sleep, such as what are these things called sleep spindles. A sleep spindle in the EEG is, a, is an event that lasts about a second. We all of a sudden see a, a, a wave pattern building up and then dying out, and it sort of has the shape of a spindle if you're an old seamstress and she used to spin with a spindle. Um, and the idea now is that those those sleep spindles that we see in the EEG reflect periods when the brain is being forced into synchronized um, activity, basically to allow connections to be identified and strengthened. Um, and I can go through the argument for you for that if you want. But basically, all of a sudden, people are saying, "Okay, so so non-REM sleep." makes sense that it would be a really important time for these memories to be strengthened. And and so people are actually probably looking at as much at non-REM now, if not more, than at REM sleep. So I think it's happening. And I think it's happening because we're starting to come up with conceptual arguments that it should be important, that it's not just the brain... We've always thought, well, you know, if you have these big, slow waves, then it must not be doing much. And I've never understood why people thought that, but that was sort of the assumption. Is this a direction you're taking in your research? I mean, if you had guaranteed funding to research anything... Uh, we look at both. We look right at both now, all what, the time. What would you be putting your attention on? What, what's your... Oh, what would I... Well... What's your true fascination here? If you my could, true fascination is probably, you know, the construction of meaning. 
and, and the development of insight and all these associative processes where we don't just strengthen. I mean, I think it's important to figure out whether and to what extent and how we strengthen memories we already have. What would be um, your hypothesis? What, what have you sort of gathered so far that you would want to um, focus research on further in that realm? If I could, I'd like to come up with a really good scientifically valid paradigm, protocol, experiment that would let me investigate sleeping on a problem. Uh-huh. That's what I would like to do. Um, because I think all of the others will come out of that. I mean, the insight will come out of that or branch off from there. But, you know, well, you're a talking pro- about the creative process. That's right. So, there's, 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 in my book, there's sort of, you can talk about the creative process in three different ways. You can say, okay, I have to choose one of these two jobs. How do I balance everything I know about me and the world and the future to pick between these two jobs? Okay. One is the absolute, absolute perfect job in, you know, out in Iowa, Nebraska, where I don't want to live. And the other is a kind of mediocre, adequate, good job, I guess, you know, in wherever I would most like to live. And dilemma. I, huh? That's the dilemma. Right. And the question is, how do we make those decisions? And I would argue that there's a, that you can do that creatively or you can do it, you can imagine doing it in a sort of depressed Eeyore kind of a way. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, I guess, I guess I really have to do that, you know. So, so I think there's a kind of creativity which has to do with allowing yourself to really open up as many channels as possible for consideration mm-hmm. instead of just looking at which one's going to have the better retirement plan, right? So that's, that's a very straightforward kind of creativity. A second level is when you want to do something like write a novel, and you're in the process, and you sort of vaguely know what it is you want to do. But, of course, the characters are going to tell you what they're going to do anyhow. Mm-hmm. And and so that kind of process where, where it's almost a forced creativity in the sense that you know that you want to create a, a, a something new of a certain type. And you go, you know, you decide, you know, you decide to do a, a sculpture about the war in Iraq, you know, and you just go and you, you, you work your networks at, at a dozen different levels to come up with themes and images and, and then details and all of that creativity. And both of those are different from this sort of insight where you don't even know that you're looking for something or you have no clue what you're looking for. And the difference between these three types is probably just a progression along a single dimension of how wide do you open up your associative networks mm-hmm. and how tight are your criteria for success. Well, hearing what you mm-hmm. said, as a, as a creative artist myself, mm-hmm. I would say that um, all three um, types of creativity are in operation 
pretty much at all times because we we all want to be original and and be innovators. Um, but on a particular piece we're working on, there's the level of solving particular compositional right. or technical right. issues, and then there are these moments of that just kind of come in like lightning, you know? Yeah. Pardon? Make it all worthwhile. Yes. The insight moments where something you never could have thought of right. um, is presented and you just rush to try to do it justice right. technically. I mean, it's, it's the muses. Yeah. Right? It's this, you, I mean, we, we really want to both claim it as ours, but you really feel like you almost want to externalize the source of it because I was just, you know, I was just sitting there looking at this data and all of a sudden, or I was looking at this piece of wood mm-hmm. with this really unpleasant knot that I hadn't realized was there. And all of a sudden, I realized that that, you know, that that knot in that wood was the greatest gift I'd ever been given. You know, I mean, we, mm-hmm. we, we truly find ourselves overwhelmed of a sudden by the insights. And, I mean, I would argue that they don't all work all the time and that we spend a lot of frustrated time because they won't work. I mean, this is when you sit there looking at the piece of paper and all that comes out is sort of pedantic drivel and you don't quite know what to do. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, writer block is probably a lot about anxiety, but anxiety probably, you know, again, if you think of that adrenergic, the cholinergic neuromodulation. I mean, anxiety is high adrenaline. Mm-hmm. And I don't think creative processes can work if you've got high adrenaline levels going. And cortisol, right? And cortisol, which, which goes along with it. And, and it's, important, it's important to be able to get into a state that's not particularly creative, you know, when you're just, you know, when you're just doing rewrites, when you're just crafting the last details and you're trying to deal with this paragraph that just looks ugly no matter how you write it I mean when it's, when it's sort of down to there's a level of craftsmanship where you just want to be highly focused and highly efficient and not particularly creative that's your editing mode yeah and and, and so we're not always in that state and in fact there's nothing more frustrating than to be at a certain point in, you know, fourth draft or fifth draft where you suddenly get a really good idea. And you sort of want to say, go away. <laughs> you know, it's way too late for a really good idea. And and so so we have these different states. And I don't know that the three graduations of creativity that I talked about would be considered different states. It might be that what the brain's doing is slightly different. But it might all just be the same thing on a continuum. Um, so, so part of me secretly would love to just study, you know, that sort of stuff aside from sleep. It's just that pragmatically and politically, that's not a wise thing for me to do. Mm-hmm. I hear you, but I just had to ask. Yeah. Um, are there any studies or people um, that you know of who are interested um, on a scientific level? Uh, in looking at sleep and meditation and how they relate? Well, so so I have twice tried to do a study and both times had 
students, helpers who didn't work out. Maybe it's a little bit too hard, but yes, I am, but not not deeply. Only from from a sleep perspective, not from a meditation perspective. And I've been trying to do some collaborative studies with Sarah Lazar, who's at MIT, mm-hmm. and studies the neurobiology of meditation. Um, and I probably should connect back up to Richie Davidson at Wisconsin now that I think about it. He's doing a lot of the big meditation, neurophysiology, and brain imaging. And what about Herbert Benson and um, his colleagues um, and John Kabat-Zinn? Right. Folks who are using meditation um, more for um, physical symptoms such as right. the heart and, and so forth. But I, I know Dr. Benson has um, done a number of studies with yogis and lamas in the lab um, getting their yeah. their brain waves recorded. So and, and and my sense is that Benson, um, this is pure prejudice, okay, mm-hmm. that Benson is a little bit out of the cutting edge at this point. Um, Richie David, do you know Richie Davidson? I don't. Okay, so Richie Davidson is at the University of Wisconsin, um, and has been working with the Mind Life Institute of the Dalai Lama. Yeah. And what he's doing is so Benson was doing EEG recordings because that's what we had, uh-huh. and Richie Davidson is doing all the brain imaging studies. Okay. And really, really diving into it. Um, with a lot of financial support and a lot of a lot of people, so if you wanted to talk to someone, I'd suggest you contact him. Although he might be hard to get all the way through to. Okay. Um, I, you know, I'm a funny person because I don't meditate, and I get cranky about meditation, and I don't know why. But I'm not particularly excited by it. I mean, I've been wanting to do this study just to ask the question of whether, in the in the protocol we were trying to do, we see benefits from a 90-minute nap mm-hmm. on some forms of learning, Medit- uh, napping after learning something yeah. that it helps consolidate it. Where an equal period of time just lying in the in quiet doesn't. And so the question that people keep asking me that I keep wondering about is, well, what about something like meditation? Is meditation a state that would also lead to this consolidation process? And so I've actually tried to do that a couple of times, and it's just been – I have no reason to think it's not going to work. It's just that there were all these just practical problems that came up, so it never got successfully carried out. I don't know that anybody else is looking at it. Mm-hmm. Well, good luck with getting back to that. I think it would be very interesting to a lot of us yeah, to, yeah. to know more about um, just what's happening in the brain with meditation and how that compares with what's happening in the various stages of yeah, sleep. Yeah. I mean, but if you if you just Google Davidson and meditation, I will. You'll probably get into his stuff. And I, I think he's probably at this point doing the most serious work on that. I mean, he's gotten access to all the Tibetan monks, and he goes over there, and they come over here, and they, there's really a lot of work going into it. Terrific. Thank you for sure. that source. Um, how about lucid dreaming? Any interest, Any uh, anything to report on that? Interest. 
absolute interest. I mean, I wish I could do it more. Um, I'd love to see some imaging studies of it. Um, the, 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 the problem with studying lucid dreaming is to understand what you want to study. Um, Consciousness, I would, I would imagine. Right, but from a consciousness point of view, all that's different, the main thing that's different is that you're aware of the fact that you're dreaming, right? Well, the Hindus and Buddhists say that this whole life is a dream and that waking up begins with, you know, recognizing or having the awareness that you're dreaming. So that it's interesting to me that um, that you can become aware that you're dreaming in your dream. Mm -hmm. and and, and so, I mean, this, the sorts of question that I'm, I would be most interested in is trying to see what is the brain doing differently during a lucid dream. And, mm -hmm. and several people, myself included, have suggested that what's probably happening is that the frontal lobes, which normally shut off during REM sleep, or during all sleep, but especially during REM sleep, that the frontal lobes are somehow coming back online. And that's the structure that you would expect to have the capacity to to make that that identification that you are in fact dreaming, and to then give you the control that might let you manipulate the, the dream scenario to some extent. I have had some lucid dreams, and I was using Steve LaBerge's um, methods for. For activating that, did, and did you buy his machine or no? I didn't. No, no. I just read his books mm -hmm. and uh, you know used little clues. Right. And I found that every time that I had a lucid dream, I just um, wound up very elated. Uh, I, so I really had to have become lucid, or or secondary to it. Well, I I chose to fly. I like flying mm -hmm. dreams, and I've had lots of flying dreams anyway. Uh -huh. But. Um, I would become lucid and choose to fly. And you know that that's the most common thing to do? Well, it's just wonderful. Yeah. And I, I felt elated. Yeah. And, um, you know, my experience is that I tend to feel like I'm flying too high or something. I, I get too elated and I get scared. And then anxiety scared. comes in. Exactly. I get scared and then I sort of fall back to earth. And you, 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 you vaguely still know that you're dreaming. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't make you want to hit the ground anyhow. Right. And then and then I do go out of it altogether and just uh, I'm just dreaming without the consciousness mm -hmm. that I'm dreaming. I mean, it, there's a real knife edge to it. I mean, people describe it as you really have to sort of balance on this knife edge where the two sides, on one side you wake up and the other side you lose lucidity again. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and he says use spinning, and I, I did use that technique uh, on one occasion. I, I, I chose to stand there and spin in my dream, and I stayed lucid for a while longer. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So, so I have I have put off thoughts of studying lucid dreaming, um, just because I'm not quite sure what I would do mm -hmm. from a scientific point of view. There are apparently networks of people who you can find on the web who who sort of run studies of their own mm -hmm. where they sort of would decide as a group, this is what we're going to try to do. I know at one time they, they decided that they were going to see if it's possible to walk through a wall 
One of the interesting things about lucid dreaming is you can gain some kinds of control, but not others. So, for example, if you have a lucid dream and you suddenly say, oh, wow, okay, I think I'll, I'll, I'll be in Paris. Mm -hmm. You can't just suddenly make yourself in Paris. You can walk through a door and find Paris on the other side. Mm -hmm. You can walk around the corner and find Paris around the corner. Or you can spin. And get to Paris. And when you stop spinning, be in Paris. But somehow you have to have, a, have a, a dream scenario where there is a an expected shift in sort of what you're seeing as where you are. You have to create a transition. Yeah. You can't just say, as your dreams often do, and then suddenly I was in Paris. <laughs> you, have to, you have to do something to make that happen. And, and those sorts of studies are actually, I think, fascinating. Very interesting. Um, I'm not sure how to use the information from them, and so I, I haven't gone there particularly. It's, you know, it's just having a very short lifespan and only so many things I can do at once. Exactly. Too short. <laughs> um, one more thing. You, um, you mentioned in your talk that uh, sleep is the poor man's therapist. You also said it's not what happened to you, but how you've interpreted what it means. And I'm wondering if you can say more about whether sleep is sort of reliable in um, sorting out meaning and discharging emotion or whether it's only sometimes in some people mm -hmm. or what we know about right. how sleep is therapeutic. So the first thing I would say is, as with all evolved systems, that the rule is it's good enough. <laughs> you know, it doesn't do anything perfectly. And uh, but but my my belief, and this is truly a belief based on almost no real data at all, you know, hard data. Okay. Is a that it works for everybody, and that b it's working successfully every every night of our lives. That you know when you end up depressed or at a therapist, or when you end up with PTSD, it's because because the system has failed and, and, or broken down, and that that's relatively uncommon, and that we don't notice it in the same way that, you know, you don't notice how well your lungs work mm -hmm. until you develop some condition where, where they're not working well, mm -hmm. or where you go to such high altitude that you can't. You know, it, they just work so fantastically well that you sort of forget that they're doing anything. In fact, if I were to ask you, now, actually, have you breathed in the last mm -hmm. 10 minutes? You'd say, well, sure, I must have because I've been talking, but I don't remember actually breathing. So I think I think that every night our brain is going through the events of the day, and it's, it's, it's coping with the emotions, it's dealing with the emotions. In, in, in large part, it's probably actually what would technically be called extinguishing the emotions, that mm -hmm. is to say just weakening the emotional impact of a memory of something that happened. I mean, right, these things these things our mother said to us, like, you know, tomorrow is another day, things will look things will look better in the morning. Yeah. I mean, I think those I think that latter one has actually been shown to be true. That mm -hmm. things do look better in the morning. Um, except in depressed people. 
where they don't look better in the morning. And their sleep is, uh, you know, sleep symptoms, sleep disruption symptoms are, yep. are very strongly. And if you sleep deprive them, the depression goes away. I don't know if you know this. Is, I didn't know that. But this this is that's quite a reversal, huh? This is very strict in literature that says if you take serious, you know, untreatable depressives, you know, where no medications work, hmm. that if you just sleep deprive them for a night, the next morning they won't be depressed or not nearly as depressed. It'll be strikingly, strikingly less depressed. And that improved mood will continue until they finally sleep. It doesn't turn out to be a very useful methodology because you can't just have people not sleep. Um, but it tells us something about that relationship between sleep and mood, and in this case, something that's counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. You would really expect the opposite to be the case. Well, that's what's so interesting about life. There's exceptions to everything, right. and so we can't really pin anything down, can we? It's all probabilistic. Mm -hmm. That's that's what it comes to. But I think I think that you know our brain is processing emotional memories every night. I mean, that's what your dreams have to be about. I insist. Um, well, normal sleep deprivation studies do do show right that um, people will become anxious and can even you know go mad. No, they don't go mad. They don't go mad. They don't. It, that that has has never been reliably confirmed, even even for short periods. I mean, what they do is they become hallucinatory. I mean, they start hallucinating. Okay, so sort of they they go into a psychotic yeah state for a while. Anyway. But it might be that you're just seeing REM intrusion into wake. Which I mean, is what psychotics, I think, describe their their episodes. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting if you if you if you look closely at schizophrenics, for example, the, the schizophrenic, the, the you know, positive symptom psychosis hallucinations are profoundly and distinctly different from what you have in, in REM sleep dreams. Mm -hmm. But it could still be, you know, so it, it, there's no question that if you dreamt while you were awake, you would be clinically psychotic. Because you're hallucinatory, you're delusional, you're hyper-emotional. All of those things would qualify. But it's a, it's a, it's, it's a slightly different twist that you see um, with the major psychiatric illnesses. Mm -hmm. So it's probably sharing mechanisms, but, but in a unique way. But in contrast, if you sleep-deprive people, people, you know, report seeing other people, you know, seeing strangers walk into the room that they're in. My father-in-law decided to drive back from Arizona straight without stopping, and somewhere in the middle of the night on the mass turnpike, Massachusetts turnpike, slammed on his brake because there was a stone wall uh -huh. built across the road in front of him. You know, these are just simple, frank hallucinations. Um, so, you know... That's his brain telling him to stop. Well... <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. Yes, um, you can't go any further. Dr. Stickles, I, we're running out of yeah. time, and I wanted to just give you one last chance to say anything else if you want to. Well, I think, sure. So let me just say that I think the value and, and power of sleep is, is sadly,
grossly underrated in our society and that there is undoubtedly an incredibly good reason that we were designed, or I should say evolved, lest people get confused, that we evolved to spend a third of our life in that state, that the amount of information we take in during the day probably requires that much time to sort out, mm -hmm. and, and we should give it, we should give our brains its due with that sleep. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is that as we start to learn more and more about the process of dreaming, um, it in some ways becomes even more wondrous and more mysterious. But those people who worry that we're going to reduce it to to a bunch of boring little statements that take the mystery and the wonder away, that, that they should not worry that everything we're doing is probably showing that it's even more wonderful and mysterious than we thought of.